Welcome to your money. I'm Susie Jones, back in the saddle, having been out of the saddle for a couple of weeks. So happy to be here and so happy you are with us as we talk about chores, quarterly financial chores. If you're listening right now, you can call 651-461-9226. If you have a question later and want to reach out, it's one 888 advice You can always email your questions at yourmoneyatwealthenhancement.com. Joining us now is the founder of Wealth Enhancement and financial advisor, Bruce Helmer, and also happy to have Peg Webb, senior financial advisor, with us to talk about this very important topic. Hello to both of you. Good morning, Susie. Good morning, Bruce. Hi, Peg. Hi, Susie Jones. Good to be with you, ladies. And Susie, nice setup, nice lead-in. Peg, I think a lot of people, when we talk about comprehensive financial planning, it's easy for them to kind of get lost or say, what does that even mean? Or what what should I be doing? So we've kind of, recent couple, last couple of years, I think, we've, we've taken this approach where there seems to be logical things to do at certain times of the year. And so we, we try to give like a quarterly checklist or to-do list, if you will. And here we are in April, beginning of the second quarter. So we thought today's a great day to talk about things that maybe make sense or, or are logical for you to look at with regard to your personal finance in the second quarter. Yeah, Bruce, I think, you know, it's easy to forget some of the things that we're going to talk about today because they may not be top of mind. Um, I I don't want to go without saying that um, that the messaging out there or the articles that you're reading, you know, um, you know, there's still some continuation about the banking system. And, you know, we're getting some calls at Wealth Enhancement Group, but We've also been good at communicating with everybody about what our perspective is. And it actually, it's, it's quite good. So I uh, feel like we've been doing a good job of communicating. So what I want to mention here is, you know, we're going to break down these items by months. We've got three months in the quarter. And one of them is, and I'm actually kind of guilty on this one, is checking your credit standing. Now, the reason I say that I'm guilty is because the bank that I'm associated with will actually, and and I actually have a credit card that I'm associated with, they just send it to me and say, hey, here's your credit score. Well, some of you listening might be saying, "Um, well, what, what is this credit score anyway? Well, it's basically just what lenders use to decide how likely is it that you're going to repay your debts. And so the credit score matters to the lending world. But when I think about it, it's more, and Bruce, you're going to laugh at this. It's more of a competition in my head. Like, I want to be the highest (laughs) I can be. Like, how do I work towards getting that to be the best? Um, But in all seriousness, that's one thing. But what I would coach clients and we do Uh, during our reviews is with data breaches and identity theft um, on the rise, we coach our clients to make sure that they're monitoring those um, credit services like Experian and TransAmerica or TransUnion or all of those um, for protection. And it's a good idea to request those reports. 
and see what the documents say. Because unless you look at them, you really truly don't know. Although I feel confident, like if my score is high, I'm going, oh, it must be good. But yet I probably should take that extra step more often to request those um, copies and see, you know, who's reporting on PegWeb and see what kind of marks they're giving me. And I might find something that really isn't something that I think is accurate, and then I can go report that. Bruce? Peg, you know, again, I, I say this all the time. We, we always have a general outline of kind of what we want to talk about, but that doesn't necessarily tell you exactly where we're going to go. Well, there's a lot of uh, liberty here. And I, I didn't know for, you know that you were going to go down the road that you did, and I'm glad that you did. And it actually struck a nerve with me because I'm the same way. So one of my uh, relationships gives me my credit score on a regular basis. And so I, I, you know, I, I kind of look at it. And I don't pay much attention as long as it's 800-something. You know, I know that that's a good credit score. But not that long ago, I noticed that it went down. And I'm like, why would my credit score go down? I, have not, I, I never miss a payment. I never laid out a payment. What did I do to make my credit score go down? And I never looked into it, and I never did, you know, get a credit report. And I bet you if I did, I bet you there's stuff on there that's wrong. I bet you they show me with uh, uh, a credit card that I don't use anymore that I maybe never canceled, and, you know. And so thank you for reminding me and all listeners, I absolutely positively should get a copy of the credit report and look it over and correct it because uh, I'm, I'm sure there's stuff on there that's outdated and I haven't looked at it in a really, really, really long time. So that's really smart. And then, Peg, the other thing that comes up is sometimes your credit rating seems illogical to people. People will say, well, I, I never borrow any money. Why don't I have a good credit rating? And the answer is it's because you never borrow any, any money and you've never proven that you can borrow money and pay it back. So sometimes you know, get, applying for a credit card, getting a credit card, putting, uh, buying things on it, and then paying the balance can actually help your credit rating, but applying for too much credit can hurt it. So one of the things we talk about are these bargains. You know, you're buying something at a store, and it's like, hey, you can save 10% today if you get our credit card. And people say, save 10%, that's great. But when you do that, does that have a negative impact on your credit rating and credit rating really matters. Sometimes it's the difference between whether or not you qualify for a loan or maybe you qualify, but the terms and conditions that you get aren't as good or the, in other words, your interest rate is higher if you don't have a good credit rating. So knowing your, what your credit rating is and doing what you can to improve it and protect it. And we didn't really even talk about this yet, but there's uh, services out there to, protect you from identity theft. This, in today's world, with all the hacking, all the technology, this is a huge deal for people to pay attention to. Peg? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you mentioned something about um, interest rates. And um, so when, when we think about interest rates, we're all excited today because uh, we're starting to make money on our cash, you know, money that we have in the banks or we're purchasing money markets or short-term treasuries or something like that. But on the flip side, you know, do you have anything that you're paying high interest rate on debt? 
if it's a credit card or maybe it's a car loan. Um, and, and because interest rates are on the rise, you may not know if you have a variable rate, meaning you didn't lock in that rate. So there's actually good debt and bad debt. Good debt is meaning you've got some kind of collateral behind, you know, the money that you borrowed, let's say a house, you know, you've got the collateral or a car, you've got some collateral. Bad debt would be like Bruce mentioned, you go to a store, maybe it's a furniture store and they say, hey, you can have 10% off if you, you know, open up this card, you go, yay, you know, but. Um, what does that mean interest rate wise and um, what are your payments going to be? And, and usually at a furniture store, believe it or not, the minute you take the couch or sofa out of the um, store, it probably is worth 70, well, maybe not even 50 cents on the dollar. So you need to uh, make sure that in April now that this is a good time just to look at what is your debt. Is it good debt or bad debt? And if it's bad debt, then you need to focus on can you change that, Bruce? Yeah, again, great point. Uh, glad you went down this road. Everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, most people do use debit and credit cards for convenience. But if you're if you're using a credit card and you're and you're not paying the balance, you're, that's just economically inefficient. That's not just convenient anymore. Now you're paying extra interest on whatever it is that you're buying. And I always tell people if if you buy something on a credit card, and then you get that bill. If you can't pay the balance, you can't afford that thing you just bought. You're spending more than than you should. And and I can say shame on you. Don't do that. But I know tons of people listening right now have already done it. Millions of Americans are doing this. I I, I know the statistics. People are doing it. So if you're one of those, you say, well, it's too late now. I already did it. How do I pay it down? And I think, Peg, sometimes people might have multiple credit cards with a balance on all of them, and they get their monthly statement, and they pay a little bit extra on each one. The most efficient way to pay that debt down is to take the most onerous one that's usually going to be the, the highest interest rate, or maybe it's the highest balance, but take the most onerous one, put as much extra on that one as you can, just pay the minimums on the others, and then when that onerous one is gone, then start on the next one. Kind of tackle them one at a time. If you tackle them all evenly, you're going to find you're just spinning your tires in the snow or the mud, and you're not going to get anywhere. So uh, hopefully you don't find yourself in that situation, but if you are, the most effective way to get out of it again is to go to the most onerous one first and, uh, and get yourself out. So great advice, Peg. Look at your debt situation, second quarter. What, do you, what, what are you paying? What's the interest rate? Can you shift that debt to get a better interest rate? Uh, look, look at your debt. Make it as efficient as you can. Ben? Well, here's one. We only have a couple weeks, Bruce, that we can still make our 2022 traditional IRA or Roth IRA contributions. We actually have till April 18th, 2023, to make these. But just as a refresher, if you're under 50, you can contribute $6,000. If you're over 50, you get an extra thousand, so it's $7,000. But it is subject to um, your income. So a lot of people wait, Bruce, until like right this time because they're with their tax accountant or they're self-preparing their return, and they're trying to figure out, do they even qualify 
for one or the other. And believe it or not, even though Roths are after-tax money that you can deposit into a Roth, it, it's subject to your income. So you may not be eligible uh, to put money into a Roth. Or, and if you find out that you did and you're not eligible, then you need to kind of giddy up and go get it back out um, as soon as possible. So that's one truly in April that has a deadline. Now, um, I'm going to jump to May because I like in what we have on our list for May in that we're focusing in May on financial literacy. And um, I think one of the things that the show does is it helps people understand maybe some financial topics or some terms or things like that that they uh, maybe wouldn't understand if we weren't on the show saying this is this, that is that. So um, I often think about kids when I think about financial literacy because one of the things that we can do as adults uh, is educate our children about money. And I can't say this often enough. Um, I just believe you can't start early enough uh, to uh, to get the kids to learn kind of the complexity of money and, you know, building wealth over time. But one of the things that we offer our clients, if it makes sense, is to open a 529 account for your child or grandchild. And the reason we offer these is because they have a tax advantage. If you put money in, it can grow tax-free provided that when you pull the money out, it's used for schools, colleges, universities, graduate programs. And even today, Bruce, you can use some of this money for um, a parochial school, like before you go to college. And also, because we do estate planning within Wealth Enhancement Group, and there's some uh, grandmas and grandpas out there that say, okay, I'd like to fund the college, but I'd like to do it in kind of a bigger way. You can actually pull, uh, last year it was 80000 Now that gifting per person this year is up to 17000 you can put in 85000 in one contribution, and that basically is five years worth. Um, and, and so that's a generous um, gift, but if you're... Um, if you really focus on, and I know I, we talk to the clients all the time, and they're just so delighted that they have these children and grandchildren. And I would say that, Bruce, mostly the number one thing they want to make sure they get is good education, which will allow them to get, you know, the job of their dreams, et cetera. Bruce? Yeah, and again, that's such a great point. Uh, you can't even make this stuff up. Literally within the last day or two, can't remember if it was yesterday or the day before, my wife and I were just talking about Social Security. And, and, and the reason is it came up with a couple of clients of mine during the week and what's going to happen to Social Security? Should I take it sooner rather than later? They're afraid it's going to go away. It's not self, you know, it's not, uh, um, something has got to change and when is it going to change and how is it going to change? But that led into a discussion of education on finance and how many people in America expect to live on social security. They did no other saving or investing or no retirement plan because they thought they could just live on social security. Well, social security, whatever it is, when you get it, 
was never intended to be your sole source of retirement income. And a lot of people just don't know that. People that I know personally don't know that. My parents did not know that, did not save, did not invest, did not have a retirement plan. So this, where do kids get this education? And one of the things that both mm-hmm. enhancement is involved in is Best Prep, this, uh, this organization that, that goes into the schools and helps kids get financial education that they don't get in the school. And it's crazy that we're not getting that in our schools and in our colleges, but they got to get it somewhere. So when you, when you try to make your kids financially literate, it's funny, Peg, because the things that I would talk to a kid about actually are the same things that I would talk to a new client about. I would talk about goal setting and you know, what, are your, what are your values? What are your objectives? What do you, uh, how, how do we make decisions? I, I would help them understand inflation, that the cost of things goes up over time. I would help them understand not to put all their eggs in one basket. So the things that I would teach a kid is very similar to what I would teach a new client. Peg? Yeah, Bruce, you're going to laugh about this, but <clears throat> the other one that you should teach your children is decision-making, deferring gratification. Now, <laughs> I just think <laughs> yeah. as a parent – that's so hard. It's just, um, I, I just, you know, I, I remember when the kids were small and it's very difficult because you're, they're meeting different children at the school and, you know, um, their values start to be formed outside the home. <clears throat> and that's when I think a parent and a grandparent can really help on the financial literacy. And then I've said on this show so many times that I wish that they would brainwash children in the school system and parents can do it too. The power of compounding. It's just, if you save and you can make interest on your money, you technically don't even have to leave the house, right? You don't have to go get a job, but um, you still need to go get a job, but yet the power of compounding is just a concept that everybody needs to learn at a young age because that's a big part of growing your money, um, being a steward of your money, and I think we can teach the kids at a young age. Bruce? You know, when I, when I saw the outline this week, I thought we'd blow through it pretty quick and get the listeners' questions really, really soon, but I think this discussion has been a good one so far. And Peg, I want to go back on something that you said the decision-making, the deferred gratification. There was a famous study done one time, and I don't remember the exact details. You remember the, mar- the marshmallow experiment where they took kids and they said, you can have a marshmallow immediately, but if you wait for, I don't remember how long it was, but if you wait a certain period of time, you can have two marshmallows. And what they discovered is kids that could defer the gratification ended up, you know, they tracked them as adults. They were more financially successful. They were more physically fit. Uh, the kids that couldn't wait and ate the marshmallow right away had more problems with health, were, were not as financially successful. So what we do as financial advisors oftentimes is understanding human behavior, why people do what they do. The behavioral part of financial decisions is a big part of this. It's one of the reasons our, our job is sometimes just to protect people from themselves and making bad decisions. So I'm glad you brought that one up. We've got less than two. We've got about a minute and a half. You want to get one more thing in here? And uh, we'll probably have to finish this up in the second half of the show, though. 
Yeah, the only other point I wanted to make, and I think it's important, is I think there's so many books out there, even for I've got a little grandchild that just turned one last week, and there's so many books about money and numbers, and even if it's not kids, if it's a, an adult, we have so just a plethora, you know, access to information. Now, you want to make sure that it's a reliable source. And well, we feel like Wealth Enhancement uh, is a reliable source. So you can visit wealthenhancement.com backslash your money. And it, you can learn about um, many of the topics that we uh, talk about here. Bruce? Yeah, personal education as well as educating your kids. And it doesn't cost anything. And you don't have to be a client. We're not going to bug you. Susie, uh, we'll come back in the second half and finish up this discussion and let listeners hopefully drive uh, most of the show in the second half. That sounds great. Again, you are listening to Your Money, Bruce Helmer, Peg Webb, and we invite you to be part of the program as well. That number to call 651-461-9226. You can also use that number to text at 651 461 9226. It's our Cities One Talk and Text Line. We do have some text questions we'll get to after this. And welcome back. It is your money. Bruce Helmer, Peg Webb with us from Wealth Enhancement Group. And we are taking your calls and texts at 651 461 9226. Bruce, Peg, would you like to answer a text question right out of the gates? Yeah, let's let's see what listeners want to talk about. We can always come back to uh, our outline if we need to, but let's uh, let's see if listeners can drive the show for us the rest of the way. Is it a good idea to freeze credit score until you actually need to borrow money? Question mark. And I'll let you guys take that away. Thanks, Susie. Peg, what do you think? Have you frozen before? I have not. Um, definitely considered it when uh, there was a lot of news about, you know, credit agencies and the, you know, threat of someone, you know, taking your identity. I already admitted in the first part of the show that I'm not great at, you know, reviewing my credit detail as much as I should be. Um, which the show will remind me to do that, <laughs> but um, I have not. Um, so I, again, it's a great question. I I did that before, and I thought it was a good idea at the time, and that was kind of all the rage at the time. The so-called experts were actually saying to do that, but then after a certain amount of time, I'd forgotten that I did that. And then there was something that I wanted credit for. I don't even remember what it was. And I couldn't get credit because I had everything frozen. And then to unfreeze it again was a huge pain, in part because of my technological shortcomings. Because I think you had to go into a website, and then it's like, what's your password? Well, who remembers that? I don't know. So mm-hmm. I did it, but then I undid it, and I wish I would have never done it because it just ended up being a big hassle. But it probably does make some sense if you're smart enough to keep track of it and you can go in, freeze it and unfreeze it as you, uh, as is appropriate for you. But I don't think most people do that. 
All right, 651-461-9226. That is our talk and text line if you want to be part of the program and ask your question of Bruce and Peg. This texter writes, we have our 401ks with Ameriprise. Rebranding is done quarterly. We are getting systematic withdrawals and we have an advisor. Is 1% charge for management fees in line? Question mark. Thanks, Susie. Uh, again, a great question, Peg. And when they, Peg, when they say rebranding, the texture says rebranding. I'm going to assume they mean rebalancing, right? How would how would you answer it? I would think so. I uh, thank you for mentioning that because I'm thinking rebranding. Are they changing their name or something, the company? But no, it sounds like maybe it's the rebalancing word. So in that context, um, you know, uh, I, I can't speak for, you know, how that firm or how the advisors over there work with their clients, but I can talk about Wealth Enhancement Group and what we do. So um, because one of the questions was, you know, the they're doing something, meaning they're rebalancing. Uh, hopefully you're having an annual review. Um, you should be offered at least minimally one time per year. And then Secondly, when it comes to charges, uh, every company is a little bit different. Uh, What I can say is Wealth Enhancement Group does charge 1% um, in some cases, right? It depends on the complexity, you know, of your family and your money. It depends on the the dollar amount that you're going to invest. It depends on the... um, what your requests are as far as comprehensive planning, like how much time are we going to be putting in? Uh, Bruce, do you want to add to that? Well, yeah, in, in, in the text, you know, they said rebranding, and then they said I think they're also taking quarterly distributions or, or withdrawals. Um, and, and you know, someone is obviously, you know, if they're rebalancing it, they're watching it. And then the, the, then the question was, is this, you know, is 1%? a fair price or a fair fee. I, I think it always comes down to um, do you, whatever, however you pay your advisor, whether in this case, in this texture, it's, it's 1%. And I assume they mean 1% of the assets under management or 1% of the assets in the 401k that they were referencing. Uh, at the end of the day, over a reasonable period of time, do you feel like you're better off with that relationship than you would be without it? Have they demonstrated the value add to you that the fee, whatever it is, 1%, 2%, I don't care, net, 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 do you think you're better off with that advisor than without them? And I tell new clients all the time at intro meetings, whatever our fees are, you, I should be able to demonstrate to you, and again, over a reasonable period of time, not not a week or a month in the, in the relationship, maybe not even a year, maybe it takes several years, but it's, but I should be able to say because of the work we've done together, you're in a better position than, than where you would have been. So, or and I guess another simpler way to say that Peg and Susie is what do you get for your fee? Now it sounds like the texture they're getting rebalancing and maybe they're getting some administrative or, or uh, uh, operational uh, logistical help. Is that worth one percent to you? And, and, and if you if you think it is, then it is. But if you think you should be getting more for that one percent, or 
with what they're doing that's not worth 1% to you, then maybe talk to them about their fee. The, the, the quantifiable thing, and a lot of the value added of a financial advisor, we've talked about this before, Pig, some, some of what the advisor does is quantifiable, but sometimes it's not. So if, if you're adding a 1% fee, the people that don't want to use an advisor, that one of the reasons they might not use an advisor is that they might say, look, if I do this myself, it doesn't cost anything. And if I bring on somebody and I have to pay them 1%, that means I have to do 1% better gross return just to get back to even. And how do I know you're going to add that much value? Well, that's the quantifiable part. Does the proactive management, does the, does the changes that your financial advisor makes to your portfolio, do they add more value than their, than their cost so that at the end of the day you can quantifiably measure that your portfolio did better? Even though it costs more, the gross performance was increased enough that it covered your cost and gave you a better net-net. That's, that's one way you can measure. But even if it didn't, you might say, just the fact that I don't have to deal with this, I can sleep better at night, I can do more things that I want to do, I can do, pursue my hobbies, I can spend more time with my grandkids, I'm happy. I, I, I sleep better at night knowing I've got this relationship. That's the unquantifiable part of it. So um, I, don't, I don't know if you want to add anything or go back to Susie for more questions or... I have well, I questions, think, too. Go ahead. Yeah, Pat. just one quick thing is um, one of the things that I do is with my clients, um, and, and they don't necessarily know about it, is every time I do a review with a client, I review the last six months or the last 12 months, and I jot down the value added. Because when time goes on, you know, you may not remember all the things that you did, meaning you know, you did these Roth conversions that put uh, clients in a better place. You reallocated the assets, you know, um, active management, somebody's watching your money. Your, um, I would say the biggest one, Bruce, and I don't think you mentioned this, was the behavioral coaching. I can tell you that in 2008, 2009, I had two clients um, pull their money out because I couldn't get them to not do it. The, you know, all the other um, clients stayed in and they thanked me for it. And so that's not necessarily stated in a rate of return, but it's something that they need me to keep them on track. And I know that money is so emotional that um, they need us, Bruce, uh, to make sure that their comprehensive plan actually works long term because of our coaching. Susie? Okay, very good. We just had a caller, um, didn't want to go on the air, but asked, when should she take out her RMD? What is a good time of the year to do that? And I'll let either. And an RMD is what? A required minimum? Distribution. Okay, go ahead. Very good. Very good, Susie. <laughs> I so, was close. Hey, <laughs> go no, ahead. You got it. Required minimum distribution. So, Peg, I, I have found, I'll, I'll let you go first, but I have found I'm getting way more questions on this than I have in a long time. And I'm assuming it's because the government keeps keeps changing the age, and people, you know, it's in people's uh, it's in people's sight and mind. Yeah, I also think Bruce, and I'm getting the same questions. 
is because of the volatility of the markets, not only the stock market, but also in their bond portfolios, the fixed income market um, is volatile right now, too. So the question is coming, hey, we had an automatic withdrawal for our required minimum distribution, you know, in April every year. And the question is, should we be doing it now or should we be waiting until December 31st when I have to have it out? Well, I say you're asking me, I mean, in the short term, it's really hard to predict what's the best day, what's the best month. We know we have this deadline of December 31st. um, And it depends. My answer is going to be, Bruce, where are we putting the money? Because in a lot of cases, the clients are reinvesting in a non-IRA account, a non-qualified account. And then who cares? If you're going from the stock market to the stock market, then it's not like you're really selling out. If you're going from the bond market to the bond market, it's not like you're selling out. So it is. it can be a unique answer, but I would say more times than not, it doesn't matter in the long term. You know, So if you're trying to pick that very best day to take your money out, good luck. And what I can tell you is the decades I've been doing this, it, it doesn't prove to be, hey, if you pick the very best day for your distribution, it's not going to make or break your um, long-term plan. All right. Six- yeah, and the, the other, oh, oh, I'm, Susie, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm okay. sorry. I wanted to add one thing to, the, to Peg's good answer. Um, just but for, for people that, that are still confused, the, the, the required minimum distribution, this applies to retirement plans where your contribution was pre-tax. So your contribution was never taxed and all the earnings over all the years have also been tax deferred. But when you take those withdrawals, then they're taxable. Well, the IRS sets a limit or a date on when they mandate or insist that you start to take withdrawals. For years and years and years and years, it was 70 and a half. Then it went to 72. Now it's gone to 73. So everyone listening should know that the new age for RMDs is 73. And the Peg's excellent point, and what, what I think also Peg's right, the texter was asking about, is when during the year do I take it out? And is that driven by if the market's high or low? And, of course, we never know for sure if the market's at its high or at its low. We only know where it is compared to where it's been. But the other part of that, Peg, that, that you didn't get to that I think is important is most of the time at Wealth Enhancement, with our clients, we have short-term, mid-term, long-term money. So in their IRA, we might have a safe or cash position carved out. So they don't have to try to guess if the market's high or low. If they're not sure, they can just take their withdrawal out of the cash portion and leave the stocks alone. On the other hand, if you think your stocks are high or you know because you've had this account for years, but even with the retraction that we had in 2022, it's still a lot higher than what your basis or your contribution, and you want to lock in those gains and take those winnings off the table, then maybe we sell stocks. But that RMD, you've got some flexibility on, on which assets in your IRA you use to drive that withdrawal. And, that's, and again, we always talk to our clients about spending the smartest money first. Sorry about that, Susie. Throw it back to you. Oh, it's okay. 651-461-9226. Good show, this texter writes. Can one control a 529 plan distribution for a casino academy that school that my grandson wants to attend? Thanks. Oh, wow. 
Interesting. Casino. Yeah. I was thinking that went well because you just talked about putting all your money on the table. So I was thinking, oh, this will be a good segue. I think that do they want – there's a question more about my, – my thought is, does a 529 cover a casino academy, like where you learn how to be a dealer? But there's also the question is, can a person control the distribution of a 529? I think that if you own it and it's for your grandchild, you are in control of what's distributed, Right. Yeah, there's a couple yeah, nice gambling metaphors. So, Peg, Susie's right. There's a couple different aspects to this question, I think. Yeah, so let's just start with the basics. When you set up a 529, there is an owner. So let's just say I could be the owner. I'm the one who's going to um, put the deposits in the 529 for a listed beneficiary. So I can name who I want uh, that money to go to for um, accredited schools. And I'll add that in here and I'll talk about that a little bit more. But um, so let's say I named my grandchild as the beneficiary. Even if I named my grandchild as the beneficiary today, I have the right to change that beneficiary anytime that I want to. So if you wanted to, if you had five grandchildren and you wanted to name the oldest one as a beneficiary, you can't name all five on one five two nine. Then you can always change the beneficiary once the older one has used their uh, percentage for college or um, higher education or even uh, parochial school, like I mentioned um, earlier. Now, the idea of using it for this particular school you may want to ask about that. I don't know anything about that school, but it has to be an accredited school um, that would comply for um, a 529. But they've extended, I mean, when I recently just looked for a client, I was actually kind of shocked at the school that uh, she brought up, and I won't name it on here, but I was shocked that it was, uh, it qualified. So I think the best thing you can do is research Uh, or even call that school because they'll probably know um, if they qualify. Bruce? Yeah, Susie and Peg, it's an an interesting question to me, and it really opens up our eyes for for listeners. I think when when people hear of 529s in higher education, they think college. But the definition of higher education is a lot more liberal than just college. It, It can be trade school, and as Peg said, it's even changed in recent years. It can be even uh, high school. The, the, the best example that I've ever had of something that's sort of outside the box is I had a client that, that named a grandchild that ended up not needing the money, and then he put himself on as the beneficiary, and he got a master gardener designation, and, and the master gardener designation worked. That was totally appropriate. So a, a school to be a dealer at a casino, I, don't, I agree. I don't know for sure. But it wouldn't surprise me if, 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 if it does. So I think they got to check specifically with that school or that, uh, that, that, that facility that's doing that education. But I would not be surprised if you can use a 529 there. Susie, do we have time for any more? Oh, I think we do. Uh, this texture writes, thanks for your show. How do you feel about putting significant money into an ETF that is focused on U.S. Treasuries? Thanks, Lee. What's an ETF? Thank you, Susie. ETF, uh, 
is an exchange-traded fund, exchange-traded fund into U.S. Treasuries. Peg, I bet you like that idea. <laughs> um, exchange-traded funds, um, a lot of people hear the words mutual fund, that um, and exchange-traded funds are similar in that it's a basket of securities. And the basket that this texter is um, asking about is U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, and so overall, let's just say generally, yes, I would be a fan of having a portion of your portfolio in bonds or fixed income and a portion of your portfolio in growth, the stock market. And I don't care what your age is, that you're going to have a percentage of both of those. I believe you should have a percentage of both of those. The question is, is where is right now, if you purchase a, a treasury basket, you have to ask yourself, where are interest rates going? Are they going higher or are they going lower? Talked on this show uh, a lot in the recent past about fixed income and bonds and how they work. If you buy a 4% bond today and we're able to get a 6% bond three months from now, your 4% bond isn't going to be worth as much as it would be if interest rates had stayed at 4%. Now, if you don't sell that bond before it matures, you're not going to lose money, but you'd be losing in the extra interest rate that you could have had you waited. So you, you can't predict that, you know, um, because it's all in the short term. So, yes, I'm a fan of ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and I'm a fan of treasuries, and it probably fits for some percentage in um, people's portfolio and, and, and this texture. Bruce? Susie, the only thing I'll add quickly is um, ETFs are sort of a, a newer version of mutual funds, and occasionally I get the question, well, how are they different? Well, ETFs trade more like an individual security. They trade in real time. And there's usually less overall trading that goes on within the basket of investments. So there's certain advantages. And then people say, then why are you still using old mutual funds? And the answer is that ETFs are relatively new. There's not as many of them. We're not always sure we can diversify the way that we want. And they don't have a history or a track record because they're rel relatively new. When we recommend things to clients, we like to be able to look at a long track record of success, not that past performance guarantees future results, but we'd like to see some history. But you, you'll hear more about ETFs, and I know we're out of time. All right. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you this week. Your money at wealthenhancement.com. A couple people still have text questions. You can call one eight 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 six advice Again, that's one eight eight six advice or you can email your question if you didn't get it answered. Again, it's your money at wealthenhancement.com. Make it a great week.